It really is a very wonderful hymn, one that perhaps we ought to sing much more than we do, expressing a testimony, expressing the truth of the Incarnation in what is sometimes referred to as the doctrine of kenosis that we'd like to look at in a few moments. I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to a few different passages. First of all, in Luke chapter 22, in verse 27. Luke chapter 22, in verse 27. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as he that serveth. And that was Jesus' testimony. He came to serve. He came with tremendous humility, recognizing that he is, in fact, the Lord of glory, and yet he is the one who came to serve. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His humiliation and then his exaltation. Before we go any further, let's take a moment and ask God to guide us. Our Father, we believe that we have come into the presence of of the one with whom we will spend eternity, that we are not here to meet with the shoemaker's apprentice, but with the God of creation, the one who spans eternity, the one who defines infinity, and yet the one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death that he might redeem us. Help us to be mindful that we are handling your truth And we're doing it in your presence. And so may our lives and our minds and our thoughts be spirit-led in these moments, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to share with you concerns the prominence of humility in the life of the Lord Jesus and its place in the life of the Christian. It's not preeminence, but it is prominence. Because no quality, no feature in the person of the Lord Jesus takes preeminence. But there is perfect balance, perfect harmony in every one of his characteristics or attributes or perfections. 
The Bible is consistent in presenting Jesus' unblemished character. That's just an evidence of the total depravity of bells, so we can ignore them. We read in, in Mark chapter 7 and in verse 37, He hath done all things well. Everything that Jesus did was well done. We read in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5 that in him is no sin. We know from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 that he was without sin. And we also know from 2 Corinthians 5.21 who did no sin, who knew no sin. There was no sin, no unevenness, no blemish within his character, within his person. In the Old Testament, we find a number of different presentations of the character, the person of the Lord Jesus, and we see that in the offerings. If we had lots of time, we could go back to Leviticus chapter 1 in verse 3, and there that sacrificial animal was taken as an unblemished lamb, and the hands of the priest were put on the head of the animal, an act of identification, and that animal that was perfect in every way, no blemish, was taken and sacrificed on behalf of the people. In Leviticus chapter 2, we find that fine flour, that meal offering. In our King James Bible, it's called a meat offering, but it's made out of flour, so it's evidently a meal offering, one made out of grain. All of that flour was taken and ground and perfectly even. You could run your fingers through it, and there were no lumps and no little pebbles and no sticks or anything of that sort. And it was made as an offering, perfect, well-ground, no blemish, no lumps, no bumps, no little pebbles or stones or sticks or anything in it. And there was no leaven. Leaven, of course, is a picture of sin. And there was to be no honey in it. Honey in Scripture is emblematic of the sweetness of nature. Nothing on the basis of our sin nature, our fallen human nature, was to be found in the person of the Lord Jesus. The Song of Solomon presents the heavenly bridegroom as one who is altogether lovely in the Song of Solomon in chapter 5 and verse 16. Unblemished as an animal sacrifice, perfectly even, perfectly balanced as a meal offering, altogether lovely as the heavenly bridegroom. We may continue that as we look at the Old Testament tabernacle. And there in the holy place there was the table of showbread and the golden altar before the veil and the candlestick with its seven branches and the almond bowls and the pure olive oil, and the wicks, and how they burned so perfectly. But on that table of showbread, there were twelve loaves of bread, emblematic of the Lord Jesus, who in John 6.35 was referred to as the bread of life. And literally, the Hebrew text tells us that they were pierced loaves. Those loaves were sprinkled with frankincense, speaking of the the fragrance of the death of the Lord Jesus. Only the priest could eat the table of showbread under normal circumstances. And they had to eat it in the holy place, that place that was marked off from the world by the courtyard. They had to go through the one door, past the brazen altar, washed at the laver, 
and then through the one door into the holy place where there was only one source of light or illumination provided by the oil, by the Holy Spirit. And there the priests, marked off from the world, were to consume that holy bread that had one purpose, one purpose to point forward to the coming one who would be the very bread of life. And that, those, that bread was made, the Bible tells us, of fine flour, perfectly balanced in all of the qualities of the Lord Jesus. Genesis 49 and verse 10 presents Jesus to us as the Shiloh, the peace-bearer. What humility we find in him as the Lord of glory, the creator and sustainer of all things, coming to bring peace to a group of people who needed judgment from the human perspective. They needed a big and national spanking. And yet, he was to come and bring peace to those who didn't deserve it. Prophet Jeremiah in chapter 45, verse 5, presents a very serious issue and gives a good, solid answer. He says, Seekest thou great things for thyself? The question? Seek them not. Don't pursue personal greatness. Pursue Christ-likeness, but not great things for yourself. It is not appropriate for the people of God to be heroes or to be hero worshipers or to be driving down that road. Now, I'd like you to come back to Philippians chapter 2, if you're not already there, in looking at verses 7 and 8, and this is the first observation that I'd like to make, that Jesus' humility is seen in his kenosis. Now, kenosis is a word that we don't use in conversational English. It comes from a very special Greek word. It's the word keno, kenosis, okay? What does it really mean? It really means this, that this was the self-emptying of Jesus himself. He did it voluntarily. Now, there are four false theories of kenosis, and we'll leave those for the classroom, not for the Sunday morning service. But his self-emptying was not of his perfections. He didn't stop being God. He didn't stop being something that he was previously. He was all that he was in all of eternity in human form. Of what then did he empty himself? Well, we'll come to that in a moment, but just keep the question. What I see in the doctrine of incarnation, where infinite God, the eternal Son, partook of humanity, that's his incarnation, but his kenosis, his self-emptying, is that he veiled the perfections that were his so that he could mingle and walk amongst human beings. He surrendered the independent use of those perfections into the hands of the Father. He had them, but he submitted the use of them to his Father. When I think of this, I'm, I'm reminded, and I've said this before, but I'm reminded of a car that my father had many years ago. He came home with a blue Oldsmobile one day that had 415 horsepower under the hood. And as a 16-year-old, that was a temptation. That's a confession, maybe, but it was a temptation. Several times I backed the car up in the driveway and 
I pressed harder than I needed on the gas pedal and I spun those back wheels. Mm, shouldn't have done that. But I did. Now the car didn't need 415 horsepower. But it had it. It was there. Jesus had all of the qualities of infinite being. But he didn't use them. Other than as the Father gave him authorization. In verse 6, in the first part of verse 6, in our text in Philippians 2, it says, who being in the form of God. Now, it doesn't readily appear in our English Bible, but being here is the continuation of a previous condition, the continuation of an antecedent condition. He continued to be in the form of God, and that is his eternality. He is eternal God. Then in the second part of verse 6, you may notice what the text of Scripture says, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now that little word that is translated equal is a significant Greek word that means exactly equal. In quality, quantity, however you want to look at it, Jesus was equal to God the Father, equal to infinite deity. What an amazing thing. That infinite God could walk the earth, the dusty roads of Israel, could bear the heat of the day to know what it was to be thirsty, to be accepted and rejected by sinful men. He did that freely, voluntarily, while he was equal in every way with the Father. In the first part of verse 7, I see his humility in that he says, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. There is his eternality, and there, his, there is his equality, and then his humility in verse 7. And in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. He didn't need to go strutting around feeling that he was very important. He didn't need to have army boots and click his heels together. He walked with humility. He didn't need to try and impress anybody. He wasn't trying to be a hero or to be popular or to be highly esteemed by human beings. He came to be a servant. He came to minister, not to be ministered unto. And as we mentioned earlier in verse 9, because of his humiliation, because of accepting that position of humility, he was highly exalted, and to him, ultimately, every knee will bow. Our text tells us that he took upon him himself the form of a servant. He ministered to the immoral, to the financially dishonest, no doubt to the foul-mouthed, to the proud, the arrogant, to those who were bound by sin, the demon-possessed, the needy. Luke 19.10 tells us that he came, he came voluntarily to seek and to save that which was lost. Does that leave anybody out? Do we not all by nature share that commonality? Lost and needing a Savior? He demonstrated his servanthood in being obedient unto death. The text tells us even the death of the cross. 
And we know from Hebrews 12 that he did that for the joy that was set before him. I don't think those nails were a joy. I don't think the pre-crucifixion treatment was a joy or the thorns or having his whiskers pulled out and his face marred so that he didn't look human anymore. I don't think that was a joy. But the joy of saving such people as we are was very real, very strong. In order to do that, he had to go to the cross. And he was willing and joyful to do that. Secondly, I'd like you to notice that Jesus' humility is seen in his ministry and his death. How do we see that? Well, I see it in his attitude. We know from John chapter 8 and verse 20, I seek not mine own glory. John 5.41 says, I receive not honor from men. His attitude reveals humility. He could say in John 8.29, For I do always those things that please him, that please the Father. Always. Never a thought. Never a word. Never an action that didn't please the Father. They all did. Jesus' humility was simply in the, the voluntarily surrendering of himself to the Father. And he saw himself as a servant of God for mankind, objects of the Father's love. We know from Psalm 42 in that passage that describes the coming Messiah as the elect servant of God. In that same passage, it tells us he shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He wouldn't cry. And he wouldn't be fomenting insurrection. He would be quiet, marked with humility, not trying to be a character that would go down in the history books or that would be highly esteemed that people would say, isn't he wonderful? His attitude was one of profound humility in that he embraced the cross and all that it involved so that he could save you and me. I see his humility in his death and in his ministry, in his actions. He believed in ministry to children. And so should we. We see that in Matthew chapter 18, and we can just turn back to that very quickly. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 2. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 2, And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus believed in the ministry of children and two children. In his actions, he baptized publicans and sinners, and we know that from Luke 3. 
He didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Those that were whole didn't need a physician, but he came to minister to bring healing to those who were troubled, who were damaged by life and the grief that life sometimes brings. He came to minister to the sick. He came to lay down his life for the sheep, willingly, freely, happily, voluntarily. He didn't argue with his accusers. He stood there in silence, and they accused him of all kinds of strange things. In fact, they couldn't even get their act together in what they would accuse him. And we know from Isaiah 53 and verse 7, he was like a sheep dumb before its shearers. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't argue. He didn't come back with all kinds of accusations or counter-accusations or some justification for what he said or did in his life and ministry. In that, he fulfilled prophecy. On the way to the cross, as he was beaten, carrying that cross, he ministered to what Luke 23 refers to as the daughters of Jerusalem, those that were weeping over what was about to happen, those who were, were grieving for his imminent death and crucifixion, and he paused to minister to them. His humility was seen in his actions. And when he was being crucified, he prayed for his executioners that they would be forgiven because they were ignorant. They didn't know what they were doing. While he was on the cross, he made provision for his mother, entrusting her to John to care for her. He wasn't concerned about his pain, his imminent death. He wasn't concerned about the blood flowing from his body. He wasn't concerned about all of the grief that was his at that moment in bearing that righteous infinite judgment, that emotional, spiritual pain as forsaken by the Father. He was concerned about his mother being cared for by the Apostle John. While he was on the cross, he was forgiving the thief who initially railed against him. And he reminded this believing thief who could dare to call him Lord he reminded him that today they would be together in paradise in the realm of the blessed dead. On the cross, he fulfilled prophecy. As he quoted from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was speaking to the Father. And it was there on the cross that he completed the work of salvation for you, for me, for all the world, as he said, it is finished in John 19, in verse 30. We see the humility of the Lord Jesus in his death and in his ministry, by his attitude and by his actions. Thirdly, we see his humility, the humility of Jesus in his burial and in his resurrection. In his burial. We know from Isaiah 53, in verse 9, that he made his grave with the wicked crucified with two men who were thieves, and yet with the rich. It was Joseph of Arimathea who begged the body of Jesus, who took it down from the cross and placed Jesus' body in his own new tomb, freshly made, and then rolled a great stone over it. Here the Lord of glory, 
the eternal Son incarnate in his humiliation was buried in a borrowed tomb. Did he not make that rock? Did he not give the strength and energy and know-how to the men who chiseled that rock out? Yes, but that rock was that place for his own burial. We see his humiliation also in his resurrection. It was Mary Magdalene, one out of whom he had cast seven demons. And here, Mary Magdalene was the first one to see the resurrected Jesus. Yes, the disciples had been there. Peter and John had had a race to get to the tomb, but they didn't stay. But it was Mary Magdalene who tarried at the tomb, who was the first one to see the resurrected body of Jesus speaking to her. It's significant that perhaps through her tears, she saw Jesus standing there and didn't recognize him. Maybe she thought he was the gardener and and maybe because she had her eyes filled with tears and maybe she was just looking in a slightly different direction, she thought it was the gardener. And yet when Jesus spoke her name, Mary, she turned and wanted to embrace him. Now, I don't think there would be anything wrong with Mary embracing Jesus, but perhaps in her mind the thought was to keep him. And he said, no, you can't do that. I haven't yet ascended to my Father. This whole ordeal is not quite over yet. Salvation is provided, but I must walk the earth for 40 days, and then I must ascend up and be seated at the Father's right hand, and the time will come when you can keep me, when you can embrace me, but that's not yet. And it isn't yet to this day for the majority of believers. And fourthly, I'd like you to notice that, the, that Jesus' humility is seen in his people, in our minds. Just go back with me to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment and verse 5. Keeping in mind that this is simply not a nice little thought or a gentle suggestion, this is specific instruction. To do otherwise constitutes disobedience. Where he says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, this is your responsibility and mine, that we are to have a mind marked with humility. We know from Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 that Paul served the Lord with all humility of mind as he went around from town to town, ministering in the synagogues, ministering in the homes, in the churches, in the private conversations. Was he not the greatest theologian of all times? Wasn't he the great missionary statesman of all times? Yes. But the text of Scripture reminds us that he did that with all humility of mind. In that he demonstrated he had the mind of Christ. Further, Christians are to have all lowliness of mind. We see that in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. All lowliness of mind. We are to put on humbleness of mind. We are to put it on. We are to be clothed with all humility. We are to humble ourselves, as was mentioned earlier in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. Our minds are to be marked with the humility of Jesus. 
Do you think it would be hard to get along with a person whose mind is fragrant with humility? Not only should his humility affect our minds, but our manners. We are to do nothing, nothing, not one thing, through strife or vain glory. We are to glorify God with one mind and one mouth. We know that from Romans 15 in verses 5 and 6. Godly leadership at every level is to be marked with humility. Just go back with me to Matthew chapter 20 for a moment. Matthew 20 in verse 25. Not only our minds but our manners are to be marked with a Christ-like humility. In verse 25 it says, But Jesus called them, that's the disciples, unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. His humility is to be seen in our manners. We are to be clothed with humility. It's like putting on a big, heavy, thick, down-filled parka with the hood up. Okay, we are to be clothed visibly with humility if we would be obedient to the truth of God's word. How thankful we can be that God has a design for our lives and has made it known and has given us the Spirit of God to put it into practice day by day. That we are to take our example not from human beings, but from the Lord himself. And so we sing wisely, Be Thou My Vision. Let's sing that together.